0: This is The Sidebar for the week of March 24th, 2017. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. C-SPAN's The Sidebar goes beyond the headlines of the stories shaping the conversation in Washington and across the country, with interviews that provide background and context to the issues and the events dominating our news cycle. Our guest this week is Steve Bell. Right now, he serves as senior advisor at the Bipartisan Policy Center. He is a veteran of the Senate Budget Committee, working in various roles, including as staff director from the early 1980s until 2009. We talked with him about the process of creating the federal budget and why the president's budget proposal is so important.
1: It it does matter, uh, certainly when the president controls uh, both the Senate and House. Um, then his budget takes on a a, a, a kind of a higher order of magnitude.
0: Steve Bell has been following the budget process since President Richard Nixon was in the White House. He served as the longtime chief of staff to the Senate Budget Committee and is currently a senior advisor at the Bipartisan Policy Center here in Washington, D.C. Mr. Bell, thanks very much for being with us here on C-SPAN. You bet. Thanks for having me. We want to take a step back and really better understand the budget process. And let's begin with the president, the president outlining his own blueprint, his own spending plan. How does that all come together?
1: Well, in this case, where you have a new president of a different party, um, the following happens. The president puts together what is a framework or what's called a skinny budget, and he sends it up as he has already done, with the basic outline of what he wants to do uh, in most of the federal programs. Uh, We expect uh, sometime in mid-May that he'll produce his full budget, which will uh, cover a 10-year period. But that full budget is a proposal by the president. It's his idea of what should happen with the federal budget. As the Constitution says, however, the only thing that really counts is what Congress does. And what Congress does is it takes the president's budget, holds a series of hearings on various aspects of the budget, uh, calling up department secretaries and, and agency heads to try to explain that, and then Congress begins to put together its own annual appropriation bills. And sometimes they follow the general framework of what the president wants, and sometimes not. And that is why we have this very famous phrase, the president proposes, but Congress disposes.
0: And you mentioned the president's skinny budget, uh, one of the smallest and shortest in recent memory, only 54 pages.
1: Well, you know, I've—you I, I, the first budget I was involved in, believe it or not, was, was a Nixon budget. So that's how far back I go. Um when Ronald Reagan took over uh, as president uh, after, Jim, after Jimmy Carter uh, was defeated, um, we were very close to the people that were doing budget work in the transition team for President Reagan. So David Stockman and I, and I was, I was chief of staff of the Senate Budget Committee at that time, really worked very close together. And Jim Baker and Howard Baker, the majority leader, worked very closely together. So we had kind of a head start. But... Nevertheless, the Reagan budget, while it was not as skinny as what President Trump has produced, it was delayed. It certainly did not meet the uh, first week in February deadline, which is not a real statutory deadline, but it's kind of like when we expect a president to submit his or her uh, budget. So, yes, this is, um, I think, uh, skinnier than most, um, but there are, I think, two reasons for it. One, time. They didn't have the head of OMB um, named and confirmed. Uh, And uh, most of the people at OMB, the Office of Management and Budget for the President, uh, most of the people who are political appointees haven't been appointed yet. So I I don't hold, I don't think it was a a bad thing that the President set up a skinny budget, as it's called, or uh, anything like that, and certainly I don't hold it responsible for It's going to be an inevitable delay once again. By Congress on, on getting the budget done. So yes, it was skinnier than most, but I really have to say under the circumstances, uh, uh, they did about as good as, as they could do.
0: You mentioned the Office of Management and Budget. The current director is former South Carolina Republican Congressman Mick Mulvaney. He told reporters at the White House that his objective to take the president's campaign promises and turn that into numbers. But he also then met with cabinet officials to try to crunch the numbers and figure out where the priorities are going to be. My question is, does it really matter? As you mentioned, the president can propose whatever he wants. Congress is the one that ultimately will act.
1: It It does matter. Uh, certainly when the president controls uh, both the Senate and House. Um, then his budget takes on a, 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 a kind of a higher order of magnitude. Um, they're the same party, and the majority leader in the Senate and the Speaker of the House uh, have to take those, uh, those recommendations by the president seriously. In this case, however, this budget was, is very, very likely Um, to be rejected, I would say, almost out of hand. Now, remember what the president proposed in his budget. He wants to increase defense spending about $54 billion, and I don't think very many people disagree with that. But at the same time, he wants to cut domestic programs like science and education and research and development uh, and uh, transportation. He wants to cut them by fifty four billion, so the budget, when it's sent up here is kind of deficit neutral. Now, even Republicans have said that that concept plus fifty four for defense minus fifty four for non-defense is just is not going to fly and and so the president's budget is uh, that famous old phrase goes, dead on arrival. Um, and, and it gets more complicated, not because of President Trump, however, it gets more complicated because Congress is so far behind on the budget and appropriations processes
0: you have followed the process or been part of the process now with nine presidents as you indicated dating back to president richard nixon so can right. you give us an example of when and how it worked the best
1: well, yes I, I think so uh, this is the way it's supposed to work and until I think about 1984 it did work this way president sends up his budget by about the first week in February uh, Congress begins to hold hearings on that budget. They call in the Department of Defense. And they call in the other department heads in and agency heads in. They take a lot of testimony, both the authorizing committees that make policy and the appropriations committees, which actually spend the money to implement that policy. And that usually lasts about six to eight weeks. Then uh, we pass what's called a congressional budget resolution. That's the blueprint that Congress Puts together for itself, and it sort of tells people, well, this is where we think the money ought to be spent. Uh, right after that, the appropriations. There's 12 appropriations subcommittees, like the defense subcommittee and the health and uh, Service, uh, labor, uh, health and human services, and and other subcommittees, and they begin to produce their individual appropriations bills. And if all goes well, and it hasn't for most of the last 30 years, but if it does. Um, sometime uh, about uh, September, right? Let's say after Labor Day, you will have these 12 appropriation bills, and some of them will be passed uh, in July. Then you have the August recess, and then you'll pass the rest of those 12, and they'll be signed into law by the first day of October, which is the end of the fiscal year. But... That hasn't happened, as I said, for most of the last 30 years. Why? And so it, it, it leads to a very, very difficult process this year that I think people ought to think about. Um, we haven't finished the FY17 budget yet. Um, what we did was we said, well, what we're going to do is just continue all of these uh, annual spending bills at the uh, fiscal year 2016 level. It's called a continuing resolution. Well, That puts a lot of strain on the various departments because you don't know how much money you're going to have to spend the next fiscal year. In other words, the fiscal year we're in now. So on April 28th, all that spending will stop unless the Congress decides to pass another continuing resolution or some of the individual bills. So that's messed up. At the same time, we really ought to be right now in the FY or fiscal year 2018 process, but we're not. And so this is as probably as bad as I have seen the appropriations and budget processes handled by Congress in, in the 40 years I've been here. And it is going to have consequences. It is going to delay, uh, in my opinion, consideration of a, any tax bill. It probably will delay consideration of any kind of infrastructure, a stimulus bill. It is going to probably cause uh, serious problems in readiness for the United States military, um, and, and, and so at some point, uh, Congress is just going to be overwhelmed. One thing I should add, by the way, is you know we we've passed the debt limit. That's uh, that means that the United States government can no longer issue uh, debt to in the form of bonds or notes or bills um, they have to now borrow money from internal trust funds to pay the bills that come in every day to Treasury and that we think that's that that happy situation is going to cease to, to exist in October so we have the possibility in October as we had in 2011 October of having a debt bill that has to be increased a an FY18, a fiscal year 18 series of appropriation bills, all of them uh, having to be done at the same time. And that's why I think this vote today, by the way, on health care is so important because if the president loses that, then it's going to make make it much more difficult for him to get the things he wants done uh, in the appropriations and in getting the tax bill. So this is an unusual situation. Um, And I don't think anyone was prepared, frankly, for President Trump to win. And so everyone was making plans and had expectations that were based upon a Hillary Clinton victory. And part of that, part of the reason we're so uh, jammed up here is because uh, we had what some people consider an upset victory. So this is an unusual situation, but it is also, in my opinion, a real condemnation of the way Congress has handled the budget the last about 10 years.
0: Wow, so much to unpack in all of that, and and thank you for such a a, a detailed explanation. So let me go back to, I didn't mean to jump in when I said why, but, you know, a student is supposed to do his or her homework. Congress is supposed to pass a budget, and as you indicated over the last 30 or 40 years, that has not happened on a timely basis. Is it indicative of Congress not working? Some call it the broken branch?
1: I really think it is. Um, You know, Conflict between Republicans and Democrats is not a new thing. You know, it's only about a century old or more, um, and, and so you can't say that things are tougher now. I mean, uh, you know, I went through Vietnam and the and the demonstrations against Vietnam uh, before that. Uh, you know, we had World War II, we had the Korean conflict. We've had a lot of things happen, uh, and have been able to pass budgets in a timely fashion. Um, it. It is a sign of the inability to compromise, of the polarization. Left has become more left, right has become more right, and there's not much of a center left anymore. Uh, And that has led to people just simply not being able to get their basic work done. The Constitution says that the two things Congress has to do is appropriate money and handle revenues, in other words, taxes. And the inability to do that fundamental job um, is a testament to how polarized things have gotten in this, in this country. You know, when I, when I first started being in charge of budgets back in, in, in 81, uh, we had no problem. So the appropriations committee would sit down and everybody would have an idea about what he or she wanted. But eventually Republicans and Democrats would come to agreements. We'd get the 12 bills done. They'd all be signed into law. Uh, Back then it was 13 bills, and um, we had very few continuing resolutions or stopgap measures, as they're called. But as politics has become more polarized and the extremes of left and right have become dominant in both parties, we see an inability, for whatever reason, uh, mostly for short-term political gain, we see an inability to even do the basic function of passing spending bills on time. It has a very pernicious effect because every time they do that, it costs money. And that's what I think most listeners should understand. When it it sounds, oh, this is great, we're going to spend as much money this year as we did last year. Well, that's not the way the process works. It means programs you wanted to get rid of, you can't, because the law requires you to continue them. And programs you wanted to expand in research and development you can't because they didn't exist last year. So it screws up all the priorities that agencies have, and it makes things very, very difficult to manage.
0: And I know I know, over the years you have been part of this debate, uh, a two-year budget plan as opposed to, yes. to a one-year yes. plan. What are the pros? What are the cons of that?
1: I, I think the pros are this. Um, if you do that, if you pass a two-year budget for spending and you really try to stick to it you then will have time for congress to spend a year on what it should be doing which is oversight how are these programs really working which ones should we get rid of which ones need to be increased what things overlap with other programs and you could perhaps eliminate the overlap so all of that oversight gets lost in this rush that we have now to get a budget done annually so I do think you get more time to reform and to reflect, frankly, on the, the programs. Uh, and you do not have this annual kind of uh, jam that we're discussing now.
0: Is there now, a downside? The cons
1: are, well, the cons are this. Um, people say, well, things will change over a two-year period. I mean, what if we have to go to another area of international conflict? Uh and, and the answer to that, of course, is, well, if we were to do it with a one-year budget, you'd still have to have uh, you know, more money for defense, and it would be an emergency uh, bill, and, and Congress would probably pass it. So I think we have learned that a two-year budget and appropriation process really would give Congress a chance to do its work. Um, other people have this notion, which is a very ancient notion, uh, work expands to fill the time allotted to it. And I understand that. That is
0: a true analysis. Well, as long as we're explaining the process, the difference between the year-to-year deficit and what is now a $20 trillion debt.
1: Well, the debt is the accumulated, is, is the sum of the accumulated deficits. It's money that we have already spent. And uh, this year we will probably have slightly larger deficits than we anticipated and that means the debt will be at about 20 trillion as as you pointed out Um, and we're going to have to pass uh, an expansion an increase in the debt limit now people argue some people argue well don't don't do that that'll just you know that just that just creates more spending actually that's not true what that does is allow us to pay the bills we already owe it's like a credit card you know, you get the bill, and you can either pay it um, or pay part of it, which increases your costs on it, but at some point, you have to pay the bill, and these are for things you've already purchased, not for things you intend to purchase in the future. Now, that's what the uh, the United States federal uh, debt is. It's the accumulation of all this funding you've already done, and... If we don't have an increase in the debt limit, if we were to have for the first time in our history a serious default, that is, we wouldn't pay some of our bills on time and in full, it would have uh, exceptional damage to the global economic system.
0: And so we hear the argument of cutting waste, fraud, and abuse, and then we hear the debate over discretionary versus mandatory spending. So kind of walk us through all of that. How much waste is there in the federal government and, conversely, savings for taxpayers and then the spending that we have to do versus what we'd like to do?
1: Well, let me give you a good example on the the waste. A recent commission reported there's about $125 billion worth of waste uh, in the activities of the Department of Defense and related agencies. Um, That number has been disputed, but let's agree that in an agency as large as the Department of Defense, Uh, there's going to be uh, a fair amount of waste, fraud, and abuse. Um, That's appropriated annually. That's a bill that's appropriated annually. And when we get to these bills that are appropriated annually, Congress is supposed to have done oversight and said, wait a minute, you wasted money here, we're going to cut that out. But as I pointed out earlier, things have gotten so jammed up, Congress cannot do a good oversight uh, job. So those are done annually, and they only amount to about a third of the budget. So uh, you have to remember they're the smallest and slowest growing part of the federal budget. What causes the trajectory of debt and deficits to go up are the so-called mandatory or entitlement programs. There's a way to really simply think about that word, entitlement, and that is Social Security, other pensions, Medicare, and Medicaid. That is uh, the, um, the overwhelming majority of what we call entitlements. So when a, a, a candidate goes before the Lions Club at, at home and says, "By golly, I'm going to vote against. I'm going to vote for a balanced budget," well, he's really saying something that he can't can't really ever do because two thirds to between 67 and 70 percent of the budget is on autopilot. We are going to pay Social Security. We are going to pay Medicare and Medicaid and all these other entitlements. And interest on the public debt, and all of that is already done. The Congress doesn't have to pass a single new law, and all that money spent. So, one of the reasons that we face the kind of uh, really difficult debt and deficit projections in the next three, four years is because Congress has never had the courage to reform these programs. Well, that means, as the Social Security trustees have said, and the Medicare trustees, These programs are going to run into serious financial problems. Medicare in about six years, uh, Social Security in about 15 years. And what that means when I say serious problems, it means very simply this. They're not going to be able to pay all of the bills that they have committed to pay. And these are to legitimate people. This isn't waste, fraud, and abuse. They're not going to be able to pay on time and in full Social Security payments. They're not going to be able to pay all the bills that come in under Medicare and Medicaid. And the lack of courage of it makes no difference whether it's Democratic or Republican, of uh, conservative or liberal, the lack of courage to take on and reform these programs so that they will really be there for the next 50, 60, 70 years is probably one of the great um, criticisms you can make of Congress since about 1980. We have not had a significant uh, effort by either a president or the Congress to change these entitlement programs um, in in almost 40 years. And yet this is – everyone knows it's coming. Everyone says, well, maybe I'll be out of office and it won't affect me politically. Or as Roosevelt said way, way back in the late 1930s when this program started, uh, one of his advisors came up to him and said, you know, Mr. President – um, the way you've got this program for Social Security laid out, it's, it could go bankrupt by 1980. And the president said, 1980? What do I care about 1980? That's 40 years from now. And so he didn't make any changes in the program. And guess what happened? The guy who made that projection, it would be 1980, was only three years off. In 1983, we had to put together an emergency commission called the Greenspan Commission, and they had to come up with a new plan for Social Security, a new retirement age, and all of that, because, in fact, we were on the verge of not being able to make the payments we'd committed to. So this is not theoretical six years from now or 15 years from now. Given the demographics of this country, the aging of this country, this is pretty much baked into the cake already. Unless Congress and the President can get together and show the courage to change entitlements. It is not annual spending that's causing the problem. It's not education. It's not the State Department. It's not new roads or bridges. It is our inability to reform Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid.
0: So when you saw the president's budget cuts to EPA, the Department of Education, Corporation for Public Broadcasting, Foreign Aid, the National Endowment for the Arts, what did that tell you? That told me... Same old,
1: same old. I saw that particular list of things in 1982. People come up with the same old cuts to the same old programs because they're so afraid to really get down and reform programs they think will have negative political consequences for them. And human beings being human beings, we like short-term gratitude and uh, kind of uh, short-term gain. And we really reject any notion of long-term consequences. And so if you vote for Social Security changes, you could very well lose your election. That happened to Republicans in 1986 elections after Domenici and uh, uh, others came up with a very modest plan to change the cost of living adjustments that occur annually inflation, by one half. You'd still get an increase, but it wouldn't be a full increase of, let's say, 5%. It would be 2.5% increase. And on the basis of voting for that, Republicans lost the United States Senate in 1986. So there are political consequences unless both parties get together with the president, and they kind of all jump off uh, the bridge together <laughs> and all are willing to take uh, uh, the same punishment. And that lack of courage is, is beginning to lead to a situation where we almost owe as much now as we have produced every year annually in our economy that so-called gross domestic product. It's about $20 trillion this year, and our debt is about $20 trillion. So um, we're, we're, we're entering dangerous territory, um, and uh, everyone knows it. But no one has the courage to do anything about it because they figure, well, you know, somebody else will, maybe somebody in 2028 will have to do this. But last I looked, is 2017, and it isn't going to be me. I'm not going to commit political suicide uh, for something that's not going to uh, really uh, hit the front pages or reality coming uh, – kind of coming home to roost until 2028. And that's how everyone thinks. Oh, it'll be the next guy's fault.
0: The analysis of Steve Bell, former staff director for the Senate Budget Committee, now with the Bipartisan Policy Center. Thank you very much for being with us. We appreciate it.
1: Thank you, and I hope it's complicated, but I hope everybody watches it because it's taxes out of everybody's pockets.
0: A much better understanding, thanks to you. We appreciate it. Thank you, sir. This has been C-SPAN's The Sidebar. Be sure to follow C-SPAN and C-SPAN Radio on Twitter, and let us know what you'd like to hear about in future episodes using the hashtag C-SPAN Sidebar. If you like the program, please rate and review us on your favorite podcast player. Every C-SPAN podcast is available on the free C-SPAN radio app for Apple and Android devices, as well as iTunes, Google Play Music, TuneIn, and Stitcher. C-SPAN's The Sidebar, coming soon to a podcast player near you. Thank you for listening.